Let me ask you, if you would, please, to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, as we continue our study that we began last week in the Gospel according to Mark. We continue looking at, and we sort of finish up looking at the the prologue or the introduction to this Gospel in the first 13 verses of chapter 1, and Uh, Next week, we will look specifically at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so we'll take a one-week break, and then we will come to the consummation of his ministry in verses 14 and 15 with the preaching of the gospel. But for now, this morning, we look at Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. If you would, please follow along as I read. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he had come up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would grant us understanding and insight into the rich depth of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. And specifically, we ask that you would help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. Help us, O God, to put ourselves into your word and to put your word into our hearts. We ask that we would walk away this morning having an ever-increasing love for Jesus. And we pray, O God, that if anyone here needs it, that they would have a first love with Jesus. That you would open their eyes to the Savior of the world. We believe what you say, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a, a reality that we see in various spheres. You think of politics, or you think of the military, or you think even of the church, for instance, that when someone important takes their office, there is a ceremony or an inauguration of some type. There are certain things that need to happen in order for that person to be installed into that office. Mark has presented to us this man named Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Son of God. That is, he is the promised King of Israel, Mark has explained to us even last week that he is the one who fulfills the gospel of Isaiah, and Mark states very clearly that he is the very Son of God himself. Surely someone with those credentials would be made much of when he takes his office. And yet, as Isaiah presents this servant, he presents him and And the full culmination of knowing him as the suffering servant, the servant who came to identify with sinners, indeed to take on the sin of 
sinners. What we see here in these verses before us and what Mark is continuing to unfold for us is the inauguration of the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. We see Jesus taking his office and yet we don't see very much pomp and circumstance. But what we do see is the full recognition of the spiritual realm. The Father and the Spirit affirming the Son in his ministry as the Messiah, and even the other side, Satan himself, who knows completely well who Jesus is, proves the deity, the divinity, proves the Messiahship, the office of Jesus Christ by coming to assault him at the very beginning of his ministry. So as we think about then what we are doing here or what's happening here in Mark's gospel, we see really two necessary precursors to the ministry of Jesus. We'll see that amongst other things, Jesus fulfills the Father's plan, Jesus identifies himself with sinners, and Jesus endures temptation from the tempter himself, and that is good news. So what are these precursors then? What, is, what was it necessary to happen for Jesus to be inaugurated into his office, to take his role as the Messiah, God in the flesh, who really would not be recognized by very many in that role and would not be recognized rightly in that role until later? Well, first of all, in verses 9 to 11, we see the baptism of Jesus, which is an affirmation from God. The first necessary precursor to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is an affirmation from God. Verses 9 to 11. Mark, of course, in his style, does not include all the details that the other gospel writers include. It's not because Mark didn't know what he was doing. It's not, I don't think, because Mark didn't know the contents of the material, but it's because Mark has a mission to quickly and effectively move us into the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so there are very little details here, but there are very significant and important details here. So we see in these first couple of verses here, verses 9 to 11, an affirmation from God. Verse 9 says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Uh, The scene has cut from this wonderfully glorious event of the baptism of John the Baptist, not the sprinkler. Took you a minute. The scene has cut from this amazing scene where Mark has told us everyone was coming out to be baptized by John. Everyone was coming out to see who this new Elijah was. Everyone was coming to listen to his preaching and everyone was recognizing that they are indeed a sinner who needed the forgiveness of God for their sins. And so you can picture this massive scene of crowds gathered together, a a number that you probably could not count. And then the camera cuts to this lone man walking down the road from his little no-name town of Nazareth from the place of Galilee, a place that by other Jews was looked down upon because it was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. It was a place that Israel's invading foreign armies, Assyria specifically, had allowed and and in fact encouraged the move-in of Gentiles, the invasion of the Gentile. And so it was a place that was looked down upon, so much so that you remember Nathaniel 
could ask, upon hearing about Jesus' being from Nazareth, could ask, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet we'll see that that is exactly the point. And so the camera cuts to this one man who's walking through the wilderness out to this river, the Jordan River, to be baptized by John in the very same way that every other, one, every other person was baptized by John. And we see that even though this is the Christ, the Son of God, that this is the one who fulfills the gospel of Isaiah, we see that this very one is the one who would identify with sinners. No pomp, no circumstance. You remember how the other Gospels, uh, Mark and uh, Matthew and Luke rather, begin at some point at least in their Gospels with the birth of Jesus Christ and the wonderful events that happened there as angels proclaimed him from the heavens and shepherds recognized him and wise men from the east studied the scriptures and read the stars somehow. I have no idea how they did that. And they recognized that the Savior of the world had been born. And yet, what does Mark do? Mark presents the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, and then he shifts to John and John's ministry being all about testifying to the one who was mightier than he who would come after him, who would baptize not with water, but would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then he cuts immediately to Jesus. Not Jesus performing any miracles. Not Jesus is preaching just yet. But Jesus coming from Nazareth of Galilee in order to be baptized by John in the Jordan. What Mark is telling us here, indeed what the Holy Spirit is telling us here, is that in his ministry, indeed in the entirety of his life, the Son of God became a human being, truly God and truly man, so that he would be able to identify himself with human beings. So that he would know what it feels like, for instance, to stub your toe. Silly, I know. But Jesus would know what that feels like. So that he would know, for instance, what it is to become hungry. But most especially, so that as he himself, the only sinless one to ever exist, so that he himself, the sinless one, could be able to understand the plight and the pilgrimage that the sinner goes through in this fallen world. You remember what John's baptism was for, right? Look back up to verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then the very next thing that we see happening in this is that Jesus, the, the star of the show, the main character, the Lord himself, the Son of God, Jesus comes to be baptized with John's baptism. But hold on a second. Jesus comes to be baptized with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Now, Mark is not concerned to tell us about this conflict. He only really glosses over it. But we know from other accounts, 
that John himself put up a little bit of a fight. John, as he saw Jesus, we know from John's gospel, knew exactly who he was, and he proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus came to be baptized by him, and we know from other gospels that John told Jesus, This should not happen. I should be baptized by you. And yet Jesus told him it is necessary in order to fulfill all righteousness. It was not that Jesus had any sins or needed repentance in any way. We know from the scriptures he is the only sinless one, the perfect Lamb of God. We know, in fact, that the only way for him to make atonement for sinners is to be sinless himself. Otherwise, when he died, he died for his own sin and not for anyone else's. And so this sinless one comes to be baptized by John in order to fulfill the Father's plan for him in his role as the earthly Messiah. Jesus fulfills the Father's plan here in his baptism, and yet he does even more than that. You see, in Jesus' role in his ministry, in the life of Jesus Christ, in all that he accomplished, in his finished work of atonement, in his finished work of perfect righteousness, you, if you are in him, live within the benefits of all that he did. What is Jesus doing here? He's getting in the sin-stained water of baptism. No doubt there would have been a crowd all around. And yet no one but John the Baptist recognized him. I don't know if we can fully comprehend the realities of that. God himself got into the waters of baptism with a crowd all around him and no one was aware except for John. Normally in an inauguration there's a lot of pomp and circumstance as I just mentioned. You think of the presidential inauguration, for instance. In order for a United States president to take their office, it's necessary, according to the Constitution, for them to take the oath of office, and then they are sworn in, and then they take office. It's an event that is televised globally, is attended quite faithfully. It's made a a big deal of, right? And yet the one who is infinitely greater than all the United States presidents combined together comes in order to be inaugurated and no one recognizes it. This is the way of God. This is the surprising, perhaps even shocking way of God. What do the testimony, what does the testimony of the scripture continually tell us? It tells us what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. The, the culmination of all that the scriptures tell us is Paul says that God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. That God works in ways that you would not expect because you would expect that Him being God would do something wonderfully amazing like part the Red Sea, which of course he has done and can do anytime he wants. But the normal 
in and out, day to day, that way that God works is in the regular, mundane activities of life. Which is really good news for regular, mundane people, isn't it? So Jesus comes and he is baptized in order to identify with sinners. He does not need this baptism, but he comes in order to identify with sinners and to fulfill his father's plan. And this is not Christian baptism. This is the baptism of John. But isn't that the significance of Christian baptism? Why is it necessary that a person who says, I'm a Christian, then be baptized as soon as possible? Because baptism is a public proclamation and a public identification of what you have now come to realize, that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and I dedicate my life to following him. And so the Son of God, in all his glory, comes to be baptized, and no one even recognizes it. My neighbor was telling me a story yesterday. It was a somewhat gross story. He was telling me about a septic issue that he had years ago. The septic, you know how those work around here, was failing and it was beginning to back up. You know what happens when that happens. It backs up. The septic or the the water and everything else in the water from your house goes out into your septic tank, right? But when, when it backs up, then that means that what's in the septic tank comes back up. And so they were in this serious problem that was going to cost them, at least at the first quote, about $30,000. And he just said, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't pay that. So he and his father-in-law put on waders, basically, with long gloves, went out to the leach field, which was the main problem, and started to dig. And he said, we slopped around out there for a long time, and it was the most disgusting thing I have ever endured in my life. Now imagine if you were in that position... Hopefully you never are. But imagine if you were in that position and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the president of the United States of America comes up, your favorite one, we'll just go with that, your favorite president, play it safe. (laughs) Your favorite president comes up and without announcing himself, says, hey, how's it going? I, I saw you needed some help. I'm going to grab a shovel and I'm going to come right in. He grabs a shovel and he gets to work with you. Would that be shocking to you? I think so. Yet what does the Son of God do? The Son of God comes and identifies himself with sinners and doesn't make a big deal about it. Says this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And even before the cross, which was the most significant moment of his identification with sinners, identifies with sinners in his baptism. 
this really ought to leave us scratching our heads. And so Jesus comes, he fulfills the Father's plan, he identifies himself with sinners. And then in verses 10 to 11, we see three signs that confirm his identity. He's, he's come to be baptized, and now some amazing, miraculous things happen, things that Israel knew to be looking for, things that in their non-biblical literature were actually foretold, things that prove that he is the Messiah. And yet you'll notice as these things unfold, Mark makes it clear Jesus was the one who noticed them. Verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. There's sign number one. And I would point out to you again, who is it that saw the heavens being torn open? Jesus did. We know from John's gospel that John the Baptist also saw this happening, and it's often speculated that every, everybody else standing there saw this happen, but it's interesting, you won't find that explained in Scripture. It seems to me that this was for Jesus' confirmation. Jesus has, still has, two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. It's called the hypostatic union, the fusing of those natures together. We often think of Jesus fulfilling his ministry in his deity, in his divinity, as God. And we're not wrong about that, but there is very much a real presence, a a, a real fact, a real truth about Jesus fulfilling his ministry in his humanity. So that I'm not sure I'm confident enough to say he needed this affirmation, but it certainly would have warmed his heart. He saw, some of our Bibles neuter this word and say the heavens opened as if it was simply a door. But the word actually is the heavens were torn open, ripped open. It's the same word that's used for the curtain being torn in two. The curtain wasn't opened into two, the curtain was torn in two. What Jesus saw was the heavens being ripped open. Which, Isaiah 60, which is a reminiscent of Isaiah 64, verse 1, which says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. And what Mark is saying, as he follows along Isaiah's prophecy, and indeed Isaiah's gospel, what Mark is saying is that this one, Jesus, is the one who tears the heavens open and comes down to earth. He sees the heavens being torn open. And then secondly, the second sign that he saw was the spirit descending on him like a dove. Literally, the Greek says the spirit descending into him like a dove. According to Acts chapter 10, verse 38, the apostle Peter says that this is the anointing of Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Do you know what the word Christ or Messiah means? It means the anointed one. It's a reference to the kings of Israel, the priests of Israel, and the prophets of Israel. So you think back to David's life, for instance, and the the judge and prophet Samuel goes to David's house. 
And he looks over all of David's brothers as he is assigned to pick the next king of Israel. God says, I'll show you which one it is. I'll make it clear to you. And he looks him over and God says, it's none of these. And so Jesse, the father of David, says, well, I do have one more son, but, you know, he's just out with the sheep. And so Samuel says, call him here. And as soon as he sees him, God says, this is the one. And Samuel then anoints him with oil, which made, in that sense, David a Messiah. Not the Messiah, of course, but an anointed one, which is what the kings of Israel were called, anointed ones. But let me ask you, throughout the entirety of Jesus' life, do we ever see him anointed with oil? You see him anointed with perfume and uh, perhaps good-smelling oils later on before his death to prepare him for that. But you don't see him anointed with oil the way that the king of Israel was anointed with oil. But what you do see is the Holy Spirit of God anointing him as the Messiah. Capital M. This is that moment when the Holy Spirit affirmed this is the Son of God. And so in Jesus' baptism, we have all three members of the Trinity highly involved, affirming the Son in his role. This is, of course, the descending upon him or into him like a dove of the Holy Spirit. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. We read earlier Isaiah 42, verse 1 says, I have put my spirit upon him. And Jesus himself in Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel will pick up the scroll and read from Isaiah 61 and then put it back down and tell the people, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. What was he talking about? Let me read it for you. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This was not just something cool that happened to Jesus, although it was. But this is the very affirmation of God himself. And it's capped off then with the third sign in verse 11. Jesus sees the heavens torn open. Jesus sees the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And in verse 11, Jesus hears something. It says, and a voice came from heaven. The very heavens that were torn open. A voice came from heaven and the voice said this, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. No doubt a certain reference back to Psalm 2 where the father says to the son, this very thing, you are my beloved son. And Psalm 2 makes clear that it's this son who is seated on God's throne in opposition to the world's, the nation's raging. God laughs and he sets his son on the throne. 
God is saying, this is the very one whom I have set on my throne. And probably also in a a reference to, again, Isaiah 42, verse 1, where the Lord says that he delights in this one. He is well pleased with his servant. And so the prophecy of Old Testament gets merged here just like it did in verse 1. Jesus is the king, the Christ, the anointed one. He is the son of God. He is the servant of Isaiah. And he is most especially the servant who came to suffer for his people. All of this was necessary for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was necessary that he see the heavens torn open. It was necessary that the Spirit descend into him like a dove. And it was necessary that he hear the Father say to him, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in order to conduct his earthly ministry. Jesus' earthly ministry was done not primarily in the power of himself, but primarily in the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what R.C. Sproul said in case you don't believe me. He said the Spirit anointed the human nature of Jesus. We tend to think that Jesus performed his miracles in his divine nature. Actually, He performed them in his human nature through the power of the Holy Spirit given to him at his baptism. It was there that God empowered Jesus to fulfill the mission he had been given. End quote. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Always. Even now. Well, he wasn't truly man until he took on flesh, so I retract that. But he is now still truly human. He still has a body as he sits on his throne now. That body will come back. And your body will be made like his body. We see as we look at the life of Jesus, and we'll see this unfold throughout the gospel according to Mark, but we see as we look at the life and ministry of Jesus that he was dependent upon the Holy Spirit. I think there's a couple of implications there for us. Implication number one, the Son of God has come in order to identify himself with people who do not deserve it. The ultimate act of grace. Implication number two, Jesus himself makes it very clear that it was not only necessary that he go, but it was actually better that he go so that the Spirit might come. Jesus himself told his disciples in the upper room that actually they would do greater things than he did by the power of the Spirit. Now this gets twisted and mangled in all kinds of inappropriate and quite frankly awkward ways, but it's biblical. We can't let crazy people take away from us biblical truth. And we can't mute it just because someone twists it and distorts it. 
This is not the very same thing as we experience. We are not the Messiah, okay? I think we get that. So I'm not equating our filling of the Spirit exactly with Jesus' filling of the Spirit, but the reality is it is the same Holy Spirit that indwelt him that now, if you're a Christian, indwells you. Which means we have a necessary duty and a wonderful delight to live in the Spirit and not in the flesh. You want power to fight your sin? Depend on the Spirit, not your strength. Stay in the Word. Listen to the Spirit as He speaks the Word of God to you and even hides it in your heart for you and prompts you with the Word of God so that you will be able to say, no, I don't want to do that, I want to do this. And implication number three, if you're a Christian, the Bible is quite clear that you are in Christ by faith. In him. You know, like those little Russian dolls, you put one inside the other. God has put you, Christian, in his son. In his son. In him. It's not just that he's with you, but you are in him, and he is in you. What does the Father say to the Son? The Father says to the Son, you are my beloved Son. Do you think God said that in a, in a cold, dry, dead way? Here we see the pinnacle of the affection of the Trinity at work and made quite clear to us. The Father says to the Son, You are my Son, the one whom I love. So then, implication number three, if you are in the Son, then the very love of the Father that rests on the Son now rests on you. On you. So that it's as if the Father says to you, you're my sons and you're my daughters. I'm pleased with you. Yeah, but Lord, don't you know what we do? You know the thoughts that I just had, Lord. You know the things that I just said, Lord. But let me ask you, who does the Father's pleasure rest supremely on? You or the Son? Jesus. And if you are in Jesus, then the Father's pleasure rests supremely on Jesus and therefore rests upon you even when you think those thoughts and do those things and say those words. The Father does not kick you out, nor does the Son, but they hold to you tightly so that you always are eternally in the love of the triune God. But I'm such a wicked person. Yes, you are, but Jesus is not. And that's the point, isn't it? Is this about us in any way? No. And yet it's for us. And we live in the rich love that the Father has for the Son. 
That's the key to sanctification. That's the key to fighting your sin. That's the key to evangelism. That's the key to the Christian life. What does Paul pray for the Ephesians? I pray that you would know the height and depth and breadth of the love of God in Christ. To know the unknowable love of God in Christ. Yeah, but I'm not worthy of it. You're right. But Jesus is. Yeah, but I blow it. You're right. But Jesus didn't. The fear of the Lord has a right and proper place in the Christian life. Let's not get imbalanced here. But let's not get imbalanced when we come to understand the love of God in Christ. The love of God in Christ is the only thing that can never be separated from you. Your body will be separated from you. At some point, your family and your friends, your possessions, all of those things will be separated from you except for the love of God in Christ. You want to know how to live a victorious Christian life? Know the love of God in Christ. Know how deeply the Father loves the Son. Know how committed the Spirit is to testifying to the Son. Know Jesus, and you will know the victorious Christian life. It's just that it's not the victory that the world promises you. It's not a flawless victory yet. It's a victory full of stubbed toes and bloody noses, of mistakes and sins that Jesus has already cleansed and paid for. It's a life of constant and continual repentance. It's a life of humility. And that's real victory. And so we see, first of all, an affirmation from God. And then secondly, the second precursor to Jesus' ministry is an assault from Satan. An assault from Satan, verses 12 to 13 The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. As soon as Jesus is baptized in Mark's style, he makes use of his favorite word immediately. And he wants us to know that upon being anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit, upon the Spirit coming on him for his ministry, the Spirit now takes charge in this particular role. And Mark says, drives him out into the wilderness. Which is not to say Jesus was not unwilling to go. We know from, Mark and, from Matthew and Luke that he was led into the wilderness. We know Jesus went willingly into the wilderness. But here, Mark wants us to make clear that the Spirit is driving this temptation. That this is, in fact, a divine appointment between the ultimate good guy and the ultimate bad guy. And this is, I think, why Paul will make these seemingly strange references to the spiritual powers and Jesus' accomplishment to crush their heads and to beat them. You think of Colossians 2, you think of 
uh, somewhere in Ephesians. What we see here is that not only did God himself recognize who Jesus was, but so did Satan. And Satan said, I want to crack at him. And so the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. Now, where was John baptizing? In the wilderness, right? So this is even farther out into the wilderness. The wilderness is a major theme throughout this whole section. The only other group that was called my son from God was the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 4. Mark doesn't tell us how many days Jesus was tempted, but we know from other Gospels it was 40 days. The Gospel writers are telling us here that what Israel failed to do, and indeed what Adam failed to do, Jesus came to succeed in doing. So the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness, even farther out into the wilderness, a place where he was alone. And we know that he was out there for 40 days, and we know that he was fasting for 40 days. You ever tried to not eat for 40 days? I wouldn't recommend it. You ever tried to eat, not eat for like one meal? Even that's hard. I mean, I'll just keep it real. Jesus was out there, truly God and truly man, And his human nature, having not eaten for 40 days, having been out in the middle of the wilderness, sleeping in the dirt, would have been tired, right? Overwhelmingly exhausted. And what does Satan come to do to him? He comes to tempt him. Or to test him. Elsewhere, Satan is not just called Satan, but he's called the tempter. It's his primary duty To be the tempter, to tempt people. And here he comes to tempt the ultimate man, the last Adam, as Paul tells us, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was in the wilderness 40 days, and he was being tempted by Satan. Mark doesn't even tell us the end result of that. He doesn't tell us the specifics of that. Matthew tells us about three such temptations. Temptations that were specifically designed for Jesus, the man, to depend upon Jesus' divinity or the son's divinity, all of which Jesus fought back with the word of God and simply refused to violate the father's plan. But Mark doesn't tell us that he won, except that the gospel keeps going, which seems to imply quite clearly that Jesus won. He simply tells us that he was being tempted by him. It was necessary that Jesus be tempted by Satan. Because every other human being that has ever lived up until this point, and even after this point, has fallen to temptation. You think about Israel's wandering in the wilderness. They were the ones that were called my son from God. 
And yet they blew it so badly, God said, you know what? You're going to wander around in circles in this wilderness for 40 years until every single one of you dies except for Joshua and Caleb. And I'm just going to restart with a new group of you. I'd call that a pretty epic failure, wouldn't you? God's firstborn son, he calls them in Exodus 4, Israel failed. But the true son succeeded where Israel failed. Why was it necessary that Jesus be tempted by Satan? Well, he had to defeat the evil one, did he not? He had to exercise his power and his authority over the evil one. But the writer of Hebrews also makes it quite clear that there's an implication and really a blessing for us in the temptation of Jesus. Hebrews 2, 17 to 18 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be a man in every way a man is a man, is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Temptation brings suffering when you fight it, doesn't it? Oh, but I really want it. I know I'm not supposed to have it, but I really want it. And yet, the scriptures say Jesus was made a human being in every way that you are a human being without sin so that he could be merciful to you and faithful as a high priest in the service of God. And later, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Jesus was tempted so that he could understand your temptation in every aspect, yet not with sin. So that when you feel the sting of temptation, Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. Otherwise, how could he sympathize? In the godness of God, God does not know what it feels like to be tempted. He can't. But in the humanity of Jesus Christ, he knows exactly what it feels like to be tempted. And yet, he conquered it. So that you and your temptation can humble yourself, cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me because I'm weak and I need your grace. I'm about to lose it. And so the writer of Hebrews says, because of all of these things, draw near to him and don't ever stop. Sure, put the, put the accountability software on your phone or your computer 
Have a friend you can call. Have someone ask you hard questions every time they see you. Do all of those things. But first and foremost, and central to it all, run to Jesus. Because he knows. He's the only one who knows exactly what you're experiencing. And he's the only one who has made atonement for you. Who is the high priest of God who can continually cleanse you from that sin and help you to grow in spiritual strength in order to fight that very temptation. Go to Jesus. Mark adds some one interesting detail here. After explaining that he was tempted by Satan, he says, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. There's various theories on what that means. You understand, of course, when we have a few words, something like, and he was with the wild animals, and we don't have any other biblical passages to explain those, you understand, of course, that really all we can do is make a good guess. And that's okay sometimes. We can't base any doctrine on, and he was with the wild animals, necessarily. But at least one of the things that Mark is doing is heightening the severity of the experience that Jesus had in the wilderness. Not only was he out farther even than John in his baptism, but he was out so far that it was the place where the wild animals roamed free. Wild animals that were probably hungry. This was the middle of the desert. And probably would have liked nothing more than to snack on a man who was tired after not eating for 40 days. And yet the angels were there, ministering to him, serving him, helping him, strengthening him. Just as they had come to Elijah when he needed them. Sinclair Ferguson says something interesting about this reality of the wild animals being there. He says, Jesus Christ came to be what Paul called the last Adam and the second man in 1 Corinthians 15. He came to undo what Adam had done by his sin and fall. But if he was to reverse what Adam had done, he needed to enter into the world not as Adam found it, but as Adam had left it. So when he was tempted, he was not in a garden like Adam. He was not like Adam, surrounded by the animals over which he exercised dominion. He was in a desert, surrounded by wild beasts. It was in a fallen, broken, sinful, disintegrating world that Jesus faced temptation and the power of darkness in order to win for his people a way back to the tree of life. Jesus came into the mess that Adam had left in order to undo that mess and take us to an even better place than God had made than the original garden. And isn't this the overarching story of Scripture? Jesus has come to save and restore. So we see then in the inauguration of 
Jesus' office into his role of Messiah as his earthly ministry was about to unfold. We see it was recognized by God, it was recognized by Satan, but it went almost entirely unrecognized by humanity, who is constantly tempted to look to the one who has the most power, the most money, the, most, the biggest voice, and yet Jesus came, who would not crush a bruised reed, who would not quench the smoldering stick. The all-powerful Son of God came in the form of a servant. And he got down into the mess that your septic tank has caused. And he said, here, I'm here to help. I'm going to get you out of this. Follow me. Jesus fulfilled all that the Father had ordained for him. Jesus identified with sinners as the one who would come to save them. Jesus faithfully endured the temptations of the evil one, all so that he could be the sin bearer and simultaneously the sympathetic high priest for his people. Jesus is the one and only one worth following in this life, is he not? Let's keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, what could we possibly say that would be adequate enough to praise you for who you are? We offer up our very lives to you, Lord, because you offered up your life for us. You indeed sustain our lives. You strengthen our lives. You empower our lives. As we think about your victory and your ultimate success, Lord, we can't help but be faced with the reality of our failures and our sins. And yet I pray, O oh God, that you would help us always to embrace those things, our failures, and our failures and our sins, but to then use them as springboards to your grace. That we would never imbalance the good news of Jesus Christ. That we would fully embrace the bad news of our own fallenness. But that that bad news would just make the good news so much better. Reveal to ourselves your wonderful beauty and glory. Put a love in our hearts so deep and profound that it shapes every being, every fiber of our being, Lord that it shapes the way we speak and live and act and think, the way we gather for worship, the way we scatter to live faithfully as those who offer up continual sacrifices of worship to you. You and you alone are the glorious one. And in you, Lord Jesus, we see God. We thank you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.